Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are moving outward from the land to the earth, the whole earth. And as I mentioned last time, the words for land and earth that we distinguish in English are actually the same in both Hebrew and Greek. But today, we're also not meaning so much the universalized sense of the planet, but in fact, the earth, the earth from which we come and the earth on which we depend to continue to live and the fact that we are earthlings. And this one's going to be a little different. We are going to have some biblical and conceptual framing, but a lot of it is going to be dad sharing his story of becoming Farmer Paul. And man, if you could see his beard in real life, you'd know that he really fits the bill there. <laughs> yes, Farmer Paul. Yes, it's, this will be after the theoretical, theological preliminaries. This will be my testimony. Let's put it in the bi- biblical category of testimony. Can I get a witness? <laughs> <laughs> Can I get an amen? Amen. All right. So, you know, that's right. We take it from the the Ash Wednesday liturgy, from dust you are taken and to dust you shall return. Uh, Humans come from the humus, Adam from the Hebrew Adamah, the soil. We are earthlings bound to the earth. Now, what does all this mean theologically? And I'd like to introduce, uh, rather than terms novo uh, neologisms like echo theology or environmental theology i think a, a better a term that has come up in the literature is agrarianism uh, for example there's several professors at duke uh, the- divinity school norman wurzba and ellen davies who have written along these lines let me just uh, briefly uh, bring them into the put them on the dock and extract their testimony, if you will. So this is from Norman Wurzba's book, Agrarian Spirit, Cultivating Faith, Community, and the Land, uh, and a very recent book. I'm quoting, An agrarian-informed faith hinges on the assumption that this world and its life are sacred gifts of God that are meant to be cherished and celebrated, end quote kind of a basic, simple idea of the, that gets us into the earthiness of the Hebrew Scriptures Old Testament, um, um, and I, as a good, as it were, grounding for what we're talking about. And Ellen Davis, too, is an Old Testament professor at Duke. She's written a book called Scripture, Culture, and Agriculture, subtitle, An Agrarian Reading of the Bible. And I think this is a very interesting, it's a little bit longer quotation, but allow me. Agrarianism is a way of thinking and ordering life in community that is based upon the health of the land and of living creatures. There, just like Wurzba. Now she continues. Often out of step with the prevailing values of wealth, technology, and political and military domination, the mindset and practices that constitute agrarianism have been marginalized by the powerful within most history-making cultures across time, including ancient Israel. Yet agrarianism is the way of thinking predominant among the biblical writers, who very often do not represent the interests of the powerful. The sheer pervasiveness of their appreciation and concern for the health of the land is the single most important point of her book. Or her study, she writes, end quote. So what do you think of that? 
Well, okay, so here's where I am going to present how I will be the very minor critical questioner through this whole thing. (laughs) Because generally speaking, of course, totally on board, you know, it's almost trite to say, I love Mother Earth, but I do. Yeah, I grew up in the country. I love going hiking and being outside, and I much prefer farm vegetables to, um, you know, flavorless ones that you often get in grocery stores. However, I'm always, I've become much more concerned for the romanticism that so often goes towards uplifting agrarian spirit that doesn't actually want to reckon with reality. And um, we will, and, and with cities and the fact of cities and what they bring. And so just as an example, in one, in one of these lines you read about being out of step with the prevailing values of wealth, technology, and political and military domination. Okay, to be a professor, say, at Duke Divinity School, you don't need political and military domination, but you definitely need wealth and technology. (laughs) And um, the biblical witness is also interested in wealth in the sense of prosperity. And when you have wealth, you can do things beyond mere hard scrabble survival. And also, there is no agriculture without technology. (laughs) That is how you upgrade from being a hunter-gatherer to being a farmer. So to me, I'm, I'm always a little, I'm very much, I would say I am on the lookout now for these kinds of things that very comfortable, wealthy, 1% people can say, oh, isn't it terrible that we're so obsessed with money and technology? Like, yes, there are versions of that <laughs> that are extremely destructive. But I mean, as, as I know you're going to say later, you know, their wealth is what made it possible for you to pursue farming and you use lots of technology. So, you know, let, let's not over romanticize the life of an Isra- Israelite shepherd way back when, even as we acknowledge that that is the framing source for a lot of our biblical theology. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This has to be framed in a much more subtle and a sophisticated way than a simplistic uh, back-to-nature romanticism. I'm totally with you on that. Um, I think, you know, Ellen Davis, that, that long quote from her, uh, reflects a kind of an affinity, which not, wouldn't be surprising coming from Duke Divinity School and the long influence there of theologians like Stanley Hauerwas reflects a kind of a appreciation of the witnesses of the historic peace churches, particularly the Mennonites and their commitment to living, uh, 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 farming, to farming uh, in, in more uh, natural ways. Now, that's a, a kind of a broad statement. But I think I showed you this summer, Sarah, the magazine, the magazine Farming uh, that I subscribe to, which comes from Ohio, from the Mennonite communities in Ohio, which celebrates this, this agrarian spirit of the Mennonite communities and their way of farming. And another uh, witness along these lines, of course, is the well-known writer Wendell Berry, uh, and I, you know, there's so much that these people are saying that I'm in sync with. But, you know, it gets to a point uh, uh, that I think is uh, counterproductive. For example, Wendell Berry was totally opposed uh, to the introduction of tractors into farming <laughs> and thought that farmers ought to continue with the use of mules and horse and oxen to power their machinery. And the reason he made that argument was that then a farmer can grow the fuel that feeds the oxen, the horses, or the mules, 
right on the farm and is not dependent on extracting uh, energy from off-the-farm sources. That was kind of the philosophical argument. But that, again, is a way, a kind of Jeffersonian, uh, uh, the yeoman farmer kind of romanticism that everyone could be that self-sufficient to that extreme. Well, and let's not forget how exactly Jefferson got his farming done. <laughs> he didn't have tractors, but he had a whole lot of slaves. So, I know, mean, of course, Wendell Berry wouldn't endorse that. But Yeah, and Wendell Berry is a great witness against American racism. Um, and uh, he points out that at the end of the Civil War, there was a promise to the emancipated slaves, 40 acres on a mule. Right, that that was supposed to establish uh, the the emancipated slaves uh, and get them started uh, uh, in new life, and of course Jim Crow destroyed that possibility. Um, so anyway, that but that's ancient history, I think. And I I think the author, the third author, we want to mention here at the outset that you actually turned me on to that speaks like in the tone that you're urging here that we can't be satisfied with with false binaries between natural and artificial, between uh, labor and technology, between rural and urban. Uh, His book, uh, Michael Schellenberger's book, Apocalypse Never, uh, subtitled Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. Uh, Very good book, I think. Uh, There's some things in it I disagree with, but on the whole, I think it's an important uh, um, argument for what he calls environmental humanism over against apocalyptic environmentalism. Now, folks out there know that I like the word apocalyptic, but (laughs) I don't use it the the way that, that Schellenberger is using it. He's thinking of the four horsemen of the book of the Apocalypse, the Revelation of John. It's war, pestilence, famine, and disease, I think. Death. Death, right. The four horsemen. uh, That uh, this kind of environmentalism is actually um, apocalyptic that way, that we're about to uh, destroy the the earth for life uh, and life on it. Go ahead. Tell us about Schellenberger. Oh, well, I, I can't remember how I, I came across um, his work, but basically he's um, a, a longtime environmental advocate and activist and over time just became deeply disenchanted with what he saw, both its refusal to face reality and actually its its profound anti-humanism. And he realized how much of the uh, especially high level um, elite, politically wealthy and powerful environmentalism really, really hated hates the human race and would probably prefer to see it wiped off the face of the earth. And um, so that combined with some actually on the ground um, study and work showed him that um, the romantic view and the anti-human view was also uh, even more destructive to the earth. But um, 
just the way we've been trained to think about it, you have to take a counterintuitive path to get there. So his book, which I, I do highly recommend, in fact, um, my son even read it, and he was so inspired by it, he thought he might use it as a, a basis for his senior project next year. Um, it, it kind of goes through a whole bunch of different areas of, of environmental concern, from energy sources to the state of the oceans, and talks through what is actually genuinely doable and what leads to both human and earth flourishing. So um, I'm going to read this quote, Dad, that you pulled out that you you liked because it it kind of um, summarizes his whole view. Environmental humanism will eventually triumph over apocalyptic environmentalism, I believe, because the vast majority of people in the world want both prosperity and nature, not nature without prosperity. They are just confused about how to achieve both. While some environmentalists claim their agenda will also deliver greater prosperity, the evidence shows that an organic, low-energy, and renewable-powered world would be worse, not better, for most people and for the natural environment. Confronting new challenges requires the opposite of panic. With care, persistence, and, I dare say, love, I believe we can moderate the extremes and deepen understanding and respect in the process. In so trying, I believe we will bring ourselves closer to the transcendent moral purpose most people, perhaps even some currently apocalyptic environmentalists share, nature and prosperity for all. With liberty and justice for all. (laughs) And, you know, I can almost simply say amen to that. Now, I want to say this this endorsement of Schellenberger's uh, basic uh, project does not entail agreement with all of the detailed arguments he makes. In fact, there's a number of items, and maybe sometime we'll get to that, uh, where I think his analysis goes awry. Um, And I think we should also point out, Sarah, that uh, a lot of um, environmentalists will be deeply offended uh, by the characterization Schellenberger makes, which you just gave voice to, namely that they are misanthropes inspired by a hatred of humanity, um, and that uh, their um, preservationist uh, strategies uh, are actually detrimental uh, to the actual uh, world in which we are living and which in which we are concerned about creation care and uh, to use these common terms nowadays, creation justice and so forth. So let's try to push the analysis a little bit deeper so that we see how what he calls environmental humanism or humanistic environmentalism is actually uh, uh, descended from biblical agrarianism. All right. Sounds good. Okay. I think the first mistake is to equate agrarianism with farming or rural life. Since, as we've heard from Wurzba and Davies, it is an, a spiritual and ethical commitment to the flourishing of people and all of our fellow creatures upon the earth, where we will flourish or we will perish. Therefore, if that's what agrarianism is, urbanites and suburbanites might be agrarian. <laughs> and not, not all farmers or people living in the countryside are necessarily agrarian. So, so far as we are earthlings rooted in the earth, we cannot transcend the bodily need to fuel ourselves. 
with the food that arises from the soil that was produced by eons of sunshine composing it and making it available today to produce vegetation for our daily bread. So, I think this is just basic. The soil in the sun watered by the rain is the food chain, the basis of the food chain for all living creatures. So, as human beings, that as as natural beings enmeshed in nature, part of nature, not something other than nature, as human beings arising from the humus and returning to it someday, we all have a common body, as I put it in my systematic theology, a basic health interest in the nexus of sun, rain, soil, food. And so, so con- you know, in that light, agrarianism is simply consciousness of and commitment to the enduring health of this nexus. How does that sound? Well, I, I, I appreciate the point that you can be a rural anti-agrarian or a suburbanite or urbanite agrarian, that there it isn't necessarily your location. And as just two small examples, you know, I live in the most densely populated urban environment on the entire planet. I can't say I'm super fond of it. And it's very easy, and I think for most people here, to live lives extremely alienated from the natural environment, um, not least of all with the fact that you can never get away from the lights and uh, you don't have to acknowledge when the sun rises or sets. Most of us are like that now, right? But in my particular neighborhood, there are actually a lot of little tiny family farms left over from before. Um, So, you know, you can go to a farm that sells that grows mainly kiwis and you can buy them in a vending machine, which just seems like a hilarious urban solution to the farm produce sale (laughs) problem. And there's another one nearby that has, you know, all through the year seasonal stuff, big daikon radishes and cabbages and onions and carrots and eggplants, all sorts of things. I also, though, see little family farms here that just let their food wither on the vine. Like they, and we just learned that they've basically, the reason these have survived in a very high land value Tokyo is because back in the boom days, uh, there was some law passed basically subsidizing them. We figured that had to be the case um, because there's no way they could pay taxes that way. But apparently this law is due to expire next year. So the predictions are that it won't be renewed and these family farms are going to vanish. I'll be sorry about that in the case of the productive ones. But like I said, there's another farm I walk by. I've just seen every single year thousands of little eggplants just rotting on the vine because evidently they, you know, they grow them to get the subsidy. but They don't harvest them. Lots of people have fruit trees and I never seen the fruit harvested here. So there would be an option to engage in in some more, you know, uh, earth conscious practice here. But, you know, it's harder in a city and people don't do that. It's still easier just to go to the local store and buy the persimmons, even if there's literally a tree on your block that nobody is harvesting. But on the other hand, um, I remember last time I I visited upstate New York, where I I grew up when I was a kid, and um, I suddenly realized how much, at least now, rural Americans live purely in their cars (laughs) and then in the places they drive with their cars. You can be a person in the Mm. middle, out 
in the sticks and actually not encounter nature either. You can hide uh, in your house and watch your satellite TV and drive to wherever it is you work and actually be just as disengaged with the world around you, the earth around you as a super urban person is. So I think it's very helpful to reframe this as like kind of a, a spiritual or attentive disposition towards the earth and its flourishing, not simply a locational issue. Yeah, agrarianism is a spiritual and ethical consciousness of and commitment to the enduring health of the nexus of sun, rain, soil, and food. I think that's that's cuts through a lot of the uh, the um, um, false consciousness that we can have. Uh, as you point out, not only urban people but rural people too can. Uh, isolate themselves from natural processes and basically be ignorant of natural processes. And uh, this is an alienation that I think is, uh, is, 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 is very dangerous because it, it, urban, urbanized people with an urbanized consciousness, I think, more, more, tend more to live in a totally human environment they're, they're surrounded by humanity and its artifacts. Uh, they might be some squirrels or, or some sparrows. Uh, pigeons, <laughs> pigeons. Pigeons. Pigeons in the city. But, you know, every day of my life, I see woodchucks. I see uh, groundhogs, uh, well, woodchucks, groundhogs, raccoons, opossums. I see um, um, uh, You have vultures. tons of birds where you live. Little songbirds, yeah. beautiful ones. Songbirds. In the wintertime, the beautiful cardinals. You know, we're just surrounded by nature and we're immersed in it. Um, I, I want to say here that in the Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx made a scathing remark, uh, I'm quoting, about the, quote, idiocy of rural life. End quote. Oh, right. Yeah, that's famous. The idiocy of rural life. And of course, he thought that if you're if you really understand Marx, he thought you had to go through capitalism and industrialization in order to conquer nature and overcome rural life in principle uh, in order to build the prosperity necessary the, through the conquest of nature uh, for the a transition, revolutionary transition to a classless society, to the communist utopia. Um, but he had a point that, and Schellenberger picks up on this, for countless generations, human beings have lived close to the soil, but it has been um, nasty, brutish, and short existence uh, for so many of the world's people. Um, I remember at the college, I had a reading group reading Ellen Davis's book, and uh, one of the participants, a, a film professor actually, um, who was a, um, um, an evangelical Christian, um, and uh, I think he'd actually gone to seminary, and his father had been a farmer, and he uh, kind of uh, channeled you, Sarah, and said, let's not romanticize this. Farming uh, was a struggle from the get-go. Farming life is hard. It's a lot of drudgery. 
And there's a reason why they sang that song 50 years ago. How are you going to keep them down on the farm? They're all fleeing to the city where they can get nine to five jobs <laughs> and, and better pay and better a better life. So I agree with all that, that, that you cannot view the rural life as some kind of Eden. It is not an Eden. It is still outside of Eden. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. One of the big sort of um, debates or discoveries, I don't know quite where it stands, about early human origins is actually the transition from hunter-gatherer to farmer. And it looks like, by all accounts, people had much worse daily lives once they became farmers and that their health declined in a lot of ways, their longevity even declined. The main difference is that more of more of the babies survived to adulthood because the food supply was just that much steadier. And, um, and also, um, I believe hunter-gatherers were much more likely to fight other hunter-gatherers than farmers who were forced to be a little bit more collective in their approach. Hunter Hunting and gathering, um, you know, might sound great, you know, like there's the paleo diet now and everything, but you need a very small human population and a huge amount of space for that to work. Agriculture is more sustainable for more people, but it is harder. So, I mean, we could even say we're, we're dealing with like a... a a third phase, like the industrial phase is the third big change. It's not just from farming to industry, but it was first hunting and gathering to agriculture. So it's it's. I think it's also interesting to think of, of the, the biblical story being about not the first phase, the Eden phase. You know, you could say even Adam and Eve were hunters and gatherers. Just reach out and grab an apple, just not that apple. But, you know, but most <laughs> of the biblical story is within the agriculture story. Oh, absolutely. Right. Um, I think we can move now to kind of the basic approach uh, uh, the scriptures take to this. And here I think I'd like to introduce uh, an insight of Ellen Davis that I think is very important. And I, I used it and uh, found it helpful for understanding the book of Joshua when I wrote the commentary. Uh, namely this, that ancient Israel regarded the gift of the land, that is, the Lord's gift of the land, in this perspective. It is, quote, an inheritance, end quote. That's the key idea. Land is an inheritance from the Lord. Um, and as an inheritance, it's to be handed down through the generations who so in hope and reap with thanksgiving. And that, she uses the powerful story of Naboth's vineyard. I think that's in Second Kings, mm, if memory serves, in which uh, the king of Israel coveted Naboth's vineyard and offered him a whole lot of money to buy it. Uh, and Naboth, was, uh, Naboth refused and said, this is an inheritance from the Lord. How can I commoditize it? How can I turn it into simply a commodity that can be bought and sold on the marketplace? Uh, I've received this as a gift, and I need to pass it on as a gift. And so this was the, the covenantal understanding of the land as an inheritance from the Lord. Um, and, um, of course, the king of Israel uh, had Naboth... Uh, uh, stole Naboth's vineyard and put him to death and all that kind of thing, indicating the corruption of government uh, uh, 
in commoditizing things like the land, which we'll get to. A oh little no, bit Dad, later. that that's called eminent domain. Eminent domain, right? Yes, and what abuses that has been made of that. Come ye thankful people, come, raise the song of harvest home. All be safely gathered in, ere the winter storm begin. God our maker doth provide all our wants to be supplied. Come ye thankful people, come, raise the song of harvest home. If you can sing that and mean it, you are a biblical agrarian. All right. That's a pretty low bar to entry. I think that'll work. <laughs> All right. Uh, you got to mean it, though. You can't just sing it and enjoy it once a year <laughs> at Thanksgiving. I suppose you have to be aware that there is such a thing as harvest. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so what is what accounts for this uh, rise of theological interest in biblical agrarianism? Or in environmentalism broadly, I, I'm not sure every every all theological interests are as are agrarian like yours. I think there are a lot of flavors. But anyway, go on. Yeah, eco theology, environmental theology, right? Uh, well, it's the widely perceived and multifaceted environmental crisis. Um, now, uh, let me I'm beginning kind of moving into my testimony here. When I was 18 years old and a senior in high school in 1970, I attended the first ever Earth Day celebration. And uh, I, that's how long I've been interested in this issue. Uh, because your generation and, and the, your, your children's generation, you have no idea of how far we have come in these 50 years, whatever it's been. Uh, we, as a child, we witnessed uncontrolled toxic emissions from smokestack industries. We saw dumping of sewage and chemical pollution into waterways without uh, um, any check on them. The uh, Chicago River caught on fire at one point. There was so <laughs> much crap uh, floating on the surface of it. And we've witnessed, of course, urban decay and suburban sprawl, sprawl, which destroys habitat for wildlife. We've witnessed the strangulation of family farming by the combination of corporate interests, industrialization and agriculture, and federal policy telling farmers to get big or get out in a globalized free trade commodities market. All that I've seen... Uh, uh, um, in my lifetime. So I just wanted to get that on the record. Comment? Oh, I, I remember when I was a kid, there were still don't be a litter bug campaigns. And um, I remember you told me that how normal it was. Like when you take a car trip, you just chuck everything out the window and you <laughs> were done with it. Yeah. And um, and I also remember that I stopped seeing don't be a litter bug signs because it had become internalized as such a repulsive thing to do. I mean, it still happens. But from what you've told me, like nothing like on the scale of where it used to be. And I, I don't think there's anyone who isn't at least aware of these issues, whether or not they fully agree with the science or the policies or the corrections or whatever is another thing. But I don't think it's not on anyone's radar anymore. Well, in, in the course of time, the, uh, the, uh, as much progress as we've made on, on that laundry list of things, I think there's been some regress. We'll get to that in terms of industrialization of agriculture 
and how I think that that's an issue. Um, but um, let me just say, in the last 10 or 15 years, I think uh, I think it's even longer. Maybe it's it's 20 years already. The presenting issue used to be called global warming. Now it's more precisely called climate change. And it's widely attributed to the primarily to the burning of fossil fuels, which for eons, of course, have stored carbon and thus being burned, release all that stored carbon into the atmosphere. And that works to trap radiation from the sun, causing the disruptive warming that is causing the climate change with all sorts of unknown threats on the horizon. So that's, that's kind of where we're at today. All right, where should we go from here? What do you think? Well, I mean, so much of this really, I mean, like what to, how to assess what's going on and where to go next. I mean, you really have to get down into the, the nitty gritty and the weeds and actually look at the studies. And, um, I've, I've learned at least to, um, uh, not trust um, pop science headlines or morally urgent exhortations, <laughs> and partly through um, through uh, Schellenberger's timely warnings. I think what we can more usefully do, or precisely more precisely, what you can usefully do is just talk through like your own real life experience of being someone who is keenly interested in the earth and agriculture, who also makes use of wealth and technology, who you know has to. Uh, navigate between, you know, more city and more country, because I think that part of the problem is this um, always tendency towards the all or nothing or pro approach or, you know, we've got to do all this stuff right now or apocalypse will follow. And I, I just think a more like humane, truly humane approach to living with the earth is just it's its own good witness. So I, I, I think that would be most interesting for our listeners. Okay, and I, I think that the, my main takeaway from Schellenberger is the folly and the danger of alarmism. And I think that can be extended well beyond the field of environmental concerns. Uh, we're living in a, in a sensationalizing media culture in which alarms go off constantly. No wonder people are panicked and depressed. Um, that's as opposed to um, uh, sober and... Um, uh, and pragmatic uh, facing of the problems that we as uh, cultures and civilizations are facing. Well, my journey. Okay, this is in the. This is now in the genre of testimony. Uh, and what I'm about to say, I think, will probably shock and offend certain kinds of um, radical greens. My father was a pastor in Newark, New Jersey, a very urban place, and we lived ten miles out outside of Newark. Uh, but it was a very urban environment. And I remember, I think I was about going into eighth, seventh grade, when he t took a call to move 30 miles further out in New Jersey. In those days, it was still really the Garden State. And those 30 miles further out was a move to the countryside. We were so excited about that. And we joined the Boy Scouts, and I loved the camping trips and the canoe trips and stuff. And now here's the point that I think is might offend some people. When we were old enough, we took the hunter safety education courses. And after school, dad was waiting and our shotguns cased in the car. 
we'd go out to an old weedy farm field uh, uh, and hunt rabbits. It was exhilarating adventure for 13, 13, 14-year-old boys. But, and here was the ethical point, whatever we shot, we had to clean and eat. And that was a principle that was impressed upon us. So, and, you know, similarly, Dad would take us to the Jersey Shore, particularly, to, I remember, to Sandy Hook Bay. And in April, the flounder that had been sleeping in the mud all winter would start waking up. And, man, we would fish for that delicious fish and fill up a bushel basket of flounder and bring it home to wonderful fish fries and freezing Later in the summer, we would go down further to the shore near Atlantic City to catch blue claw crabs. That was a feast. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. My father then, you know, at some point here bought the 80-acre dairy, uh, exhausted, uh, an exhausted 80-acre dairy farm in upstate New York. And from then on, we spent all our summer vacations there. And I particularly remember picking the abundant blackberries in August. Uh, later in life, my mother and I grew a big garden there. So all of these experiences I'm recounting from my youth, of gathering food from the land and the sea, they were really formative for me. And they planted within me an aspiration for my adult life. And what I learned in the process of this hunting and fishing and gardening was how the ongoing disruption and destruction of habitat was the real crisis for wildlife, as urban flight and suburban sprawl quickly overtook what was left of the garden state. Maybe you'll remember, Sarah, uh, when we came to visit you when you were at Princeton Theological Seminary one time. And we took a drive. It's only 20, 25 miles from Princeton to where I grew up uh, in the what was the countryside. And by the time that visit took place, I could no longer recognize the, much of the area in which I grew up. That's how paved over uh, it had become. Yeah, yeah, I remember that very well. You know, it, we used to joke that that Jersey is a jungle, like the where where we lived. The, the plants were always threatening to take over, but you know, the machines always beat them back. <laughs> but you can tell it, it 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 is a very fecund place and wants to grow stuff. Yeah, and I guess down in South Jersey there still is some garden farming, but uh, it was just the point I'm making is that when I got high. Uh, metaphorically speaking, as a young person gathering food from the land, uh, either through gardening or fishing or hunting. Uh, and then I saw what was taking that away was not so much the few little rabbits we shot or the few fish that we caught. What was hurting the wildlife was the destruction of habitat. And right, that right, was right. my first step on the way to becoming a biblical agrarian. But in the meantime, I became a zealot for urban life. Uh, you know, I made my decision to go to graduate school at Union Theological in New York. Here's the truth to be told. Primarily because we wanted to live in Manhattan. 
<laughs> I can see it. That makes sense. Yeah. And we embrace that lifestyle with all our hearts. Uh, after five years in Manhattan, we said, you know, if you didn't have kids and you had a lot of money, this would be a great place to live. But we had kids <laughs> and we didn't have a lot of money. But, you know, and now here's my testimony. And again, this is my experience. I was uh, committed to it. I was a, I pastored churches in Harlem and in Woodside, Queens. Uh, we really embraced it. But after all these years of living or working in Manhattan, we were sick of being crowded, sick of fear of criminality, sick of New York rude, sick with toxic air and toxic soil, sick with the stench of the subways, sick with the high cost of living. And Sarah, when you were a little girl, I would take you across from our apartment on Riverside Drive to Grant's Tomb Kitty Park and swing you on the swings. And as we, I heard the gunshots, you did, were oblivious to it. But as we walked back and I was, we were approaching our apartment building, a victim of the gunshot was lying on the sidewalk, bleeding to death. And I, I, I actually picked you up and turned you away so you wouldn't see that. And I concluded at this point, this, this is just no way to live. I, I had become sick with urban existence. I'm telling the truth. This is my testimony, my experience. I had come to the city singing with Sinatra, New York, New York, but I left singing with John Denver, take me home to the place where I belong. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me let me just interpose a, a, a quick comment there that is totally understandable, especially in the New York of the late 70s and early 80s. And I think it's really important to say here that cities rise and fall very much depending on how they are governed. And um, the fact of corrupt and in uh, incompetent governance in New York and many large cities is very well known. Um, I think there is a keen biblical interest in cities as well as in the earth and the fact that actually Revelation ends with a new renewed Jerusalem descending to the earth and it is in fact depicted as a city, a very large one and a, a commodious one that has trees and rivers within it but nevertheless is a vision of um, something like, you know, people living close together, um, intermingled in a city rather than, you know, each one, you know, as we might imagine now in like in Iowa on their own in their farmhouse surrounded by fields before you get to the next person. So I think there there is also a strong biblical call to make city life tolerable. And, um, you know, I, it's as a kind of funny, sad P.S. or footnote to what the story you just told. The last time I visited Manhattan a few years back, what really struck me is because New York has become so trendy and important. This is pre-COVID, I should say. I don't know what it's like now. Um, buying uh, apartments there is an investment for, you know, your portfolio, but not for living. There is a lot of absentee um, uh, ownership and not necessarily even rented out. And it's become so desirable that even with, you know, price controls, which rent control, which is not always the best solution. You know, there's no more immigrant culture. There's no more, there's actually no more poor people in Manhattan. Like they're all out in the, the outer boroughs now. And it, 
I was struck by how boring a city Manhattan had become. So, um, you know, there there are real questions and challenges here of of urban renewal. But um, I think at, at its best, it's a place where the interaction of lots of different people gives rise to life and creativity and new possibilities and new connections that, you know, basically, I would say even until the Internet were not possible. But there is a, a real magic that happens when it's in person and not virtually. And um, so I, I think you'll you'll talk more about a, a healthy dialectic between country and city. But to me, it's a tragedy when cities are so badly governed or turned into showpieces that they're not they also are not living up to their biblical call to be places of exchange and the gathering of the nations, um, as is so often depicted in like Zion imagery. Absolutely, Sarah. I mean, one of my happiest memories of Manhattan was uh, taking walks on Saturdays down Ninth Avenue, especially when they had street fairs or street festivals, and you could sample a gazillion different kinds of ethnic food or trips to Chinatown or Little Italy, um, various things like that. The, 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 the diversity of peoples and their mingling together, all of that was very interesting and very rewarding. Um, so I, I went on my Jeremiad about how I got sick of living in Manhattan after all those years. But remember, this is in the form of personal testimony. I'm just telling my story. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't I know, I know, I know. Any generalizations beyond that. I think everyone knows what a badly governed city is like and how awful that is. Yeah. Okay, let's go on from there. So at this point, my father, your grandfather, became disabled, and he retired to that land in upstate New York, uh, what we called the farm. And I wanted to be closer to him in his time of need. And I also wanted to experiment with our now awakening desire to try rural life. So that's when we took the call to Emanuel Lutheran Church in Delhi. And that was a blessed eight years. The natural beauty of the Catskill Mountains uh, the annual experience of, of making firewood to warm us through the long winter, all the brown trout I caught in the Delaware River on flies that I learned to tie myself. I chased around rough grouse and woodcock behind a wonderful Springer Spaniel, and several times I even bagged a deer on the property of my parishioners. And as you remember as a child, when we moved out of the village, uh, parsonage and built our own house out in the country, I had a large half-acre garden in which you and your brother learned to pick peas and make music about it. I've been picking these darn peas all the live long day. I would rather <laughs> do something else just to pass my time away. And so forth. Yes, I remember we presented that to you one evening as a Negro spiritual, a term I learned from the hymnal. Uh, you and mom, as I recall, were not nearly as amused by that as Will and I were. Yeah, you were very amused, right? You were slave labor, right? <laughs> Singing yeah. that song. Uh, to lament your condition of servitude in the garden. <laughs> when we moved to Slovakia, you know, we discovered the European model of village life is quite different, uh, a way of organizing rural existence than in uh, uh, the United States. You know, they're, I guess, going back historically for reasons of mutual protection, 
even in the country the village was a concentrated settlement and then you would go out to the fields radiating out of the village in order to work the land but when we lived there uh, the scarcity that was created by the communist planned economy uh, forced families to raise much of their own food uh, uh, and this was very impressive to me how every, at least every village house in that country had a large garden. And where my relatives were in the little town of Turani, uh, they would in, uh, bring uh, manure, composted manure from the nearby collective farms, uh, I guess dairies, and that's how they would fertilize their soil. And every family also raised a hog for slaughter in December. And we were often the beneficiaries of all this delicious homemade fruit and vegetable, sauerkraut and, and, and uh, klobasi. The taste and texture of real food there was nothing like the supermarket food we were used to from America's industrial agriculture. Don't you remember that? Uh, yeah, I remember. I remember that about Slovakia. And, you know, I think also what's available in many grocery stores now has really changed. There has been kind of an awakening of the American palate and, a, a, you know, new farmers markets and, and interest in that kind of thing since then. But definitely even when we lived in the country when I was a kid, the there was not that much um, local delicious produce or meat like probably there is now. Well, I'm getting a little ahead of my story, but the, my my customers uh, who buy my eggs, my honey, and my beef just rave to me about the superior quality compared to what they can get in. Even I agree with you, supermarkets have improved quite a bit uh, from uh, 30 years ago uh, when we went to Slovakia. Uh, but still, the, there's such a qualitative difference from between real food and industrial food. So the, my testimony continues. In 1999, we came to Roanoke College. We bought a house in a suburban subdivision, and I was just miserable there. I felt caged. So I almost immediately started looking for rural land. Uh, and we ended up uh, buying um, a 55-acre parcel out in the country, about a 20-25 minute drive from the college a worn-out old mountain land that had been farmed uh, for 150 years, badly eroded and cheap because it had no industrial agricultural value. So I bought it. We built a cabin from wood. I milled with a chainsaw mill, a so-called Alaskan chainsaw mill. And your mother and I camped there more and more frequently until after a couple of years we made the decision to build a house out here and moved in, now over 15 years ago. In the course of time, we added an, another 45 acres and a big ground-based solar electric system, which supplies all of our electrical needs for the house and the barn. And I want to note too that the house was designed ecologically. It's bermed in, into the north side of the hill, uh, so it gets ground insulation from the north side. Uh, all the windows face the south to 
pull in the sunshine, especially during the winter. We have uh, uh, the, the roof overhangs the house to keep the sunshine out in the summer. And we have uh, uh, insulated, uh, what do they call it? Insulated concrete forms. So it's like when they built the house, there were like these huge uh, styrofoam Legos, uh, 18, 18 inches in width, in which they pumped concrete into the center of it. So the, uh, so you have a, a really a concrete wall, but it's, it's, it's surrounded by this styrofoam type insulation. So the house is uh, uh, very energy efficient. Well, about 10 years ago, Sarah, I started contemplating my retirement, and I began to think about how I could farm. From the beginning, we had an organic garden where I was raising good vegetables from it. I'd planted an orchard. The first step was to uh, build a hen house so that we could have chickens to make eggs. And I think one of the principles I want to point out is chickens and other livestock form a symbiosis with uh, the garden uh, and more broadly uh, with the land. Uh, the chickens live in the garden from about now, from November to March. They scratch up the soil, eat the grubs, and deposit their fertilizer on the soil. Uh, and then we also add to that the composted manure from the cattle. Um, annually, we dig out the bedding on the soil floor of the hen house. Actually, your son did that for me this summer. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, and we make a big pile and compost it for yet another year before mixing it into the garden. As a result, I sell enough eggs to pay for the chicken feed, which I source locally. Annually, we also raise a flock of meat chickens, usually in partnership with somebody else. After the chickens, I added honeybees. My comment about this is it's expensive to get into honey making, and failure happens often and early to an inexperienced beekeeper. Uh, it but sounds I'm like from what you've told us that even an, an experienced, a well-experienced beekeeper experiences failure pretty often too. It's, uh, there's, there's a parasitic mite called Varroa that is very hard uh, on bees, and uh, it can kill your... It's getting through the winter uh, that uh, is the trick. So every uh, February, when the temperature starts up to get up to 50 degrees or so, we're, I'm waiting with bated breaths to see whether my colonies survive the winter. Right. And didn't you have one just fly off at one point? Uh, yeah, we had a couple of swarms. That's That was inexperience on my part. Um, when the queen starts laying new eggs for new bees in February, and that buildup can happen very, very fast. And if you have uh, thousands of bees hatching simultaneously and it fills up the colony, they feel crowded. And that causes the queen and most of the bees to abscond, and then you've lost them. Then they go off somewhere in the in the wild. Right, you can't fence bees in. So what you have to do, you have to split up the colonies uh, early on in March, or maybe at the latest in in April. Um, 
so instead of them feeling crowded, they are uncrowded because you've moved half of them into a new box and put other uh, another box on top of it so that there's space for them to expand and they're not tempted to swarm. Uh, our, just like our eggs, though, our Catawba Valley wildflower honey sells out almost as quickly as we can harvest it. It is very good. We've helped we've helped you harvest it. It is very delicious. It's a, a shame. Uh, honey is one of those things, you, raw honey, you cannot transport over national borders. So we are never able to bring any back to Japan with us, which is a real bummer. You just have to hang around here longer. Get, eat more honey. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and and the, we took the big step six, seven years ago of starting cattle. Uh, I have about... Um, 24 acres of pasture land on my property. I have no hay fields, so I have to buy hay for winter feed. But that's okay because that's how I fertilize my pastures. That's input into this, the ground from the input of the imported hay. The other three, uh, three quarters of my property is wooded and too steep for agriculture. But it's a flourishing home now for black bear, white-tailed deer, turkey, rabbits, coyotes, raccoons, possums, snakes of all kinds, uh, and so forth. That was not the case when I acquired the land 20 years ago. The woodlots were drastically in need of a pruning, and so with a mix of small clear cuts and thinning, followed by a Department of Forestry prescribed supervised burn, we used the revenue raised from the timber sale to build the fencing infrastructure and water lines to make those 24 acres of pasture usable again. Um, and I, the last thing I'll say about that is we decided upon the Irish Dexter breed of cattle. It's a type that evolved in the wilds of Ireland over a millennium. It's comparatively small and docile. They are thus comfortable living outside all year. They're good grazers and easy birthers. We don't feed them any grain, except sometimes the bre local breweries will give me their uh, spent grain, and uh, I feed that to the cattle on occasion. But they're grass-fed beef primarily, uh, and uh, 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 this is a kind of beef it takes longer. It takes 24 to 27 months to bring a, a Dexter to slaughter compared to a, like an Angus that goes at 9 or 10 months to the feedlot and then gets slaughtered before it's 18 months of age or something like that, where it's stuffed full of hormones and uh, grain to fatten it up. So anyway, that's, that's kind of my journey to biblical agrarianism. What's the moral of the story? My testimony. I, I, we have sought to live in harmony with this little piece of the earth over which we have human dominion. So we chose to name our farm after St. Gall, the Irish missionary monk who converted the bear-worshipping Swiss to Christianity. The legend is that he moved into a bear cave and would exchange a loaf of bread for firewood brought to him by the bear. This legend expresses for us the kind of reciprocating exchange between land, 
wildlife and people that we've established on our farm. And I think it's very important to say that credit for the name goes to mom. She was the one who found out about St. Gall and loved that image and um, and put it forward as a very suitable name. And I would also like to say it is true about how your cultivation of the earth has brought back the wildlife because I have noticed in the past couple years, I always see at least one and often more than one black bear when I am visiting you and um, sometimes in situations that are slightly alarming. <laughs> so I sometimes when I've been out for a walk, decided to take a different route so that uh, the bear would not notice me or I would not end up on the same hillside as the bear. You know, people ask me, Sarah, you know, is this how you want to spend your retirement? Wouldn't you rather go to Disneyland? <laughs> and I say, <laughs> Do they know you? <laughs> yeah, I say, I have the most interesting life in the world. Every day is problem solving. Every day. I mean, it's work. But of course, at my age, it's use it or lose it, baby. I mean, you've, you've got to stay active. And this is a whole lot more interesting than running on a treadmill. Uh, as far true. as I'm concerned. Yeah. And we take, I tell you, we take great spiritual and ethical satisfaction. Besides feeding ourselves, we feed eight to 10 families with our eggs, honey, and beef. Uh, it's food that has been humanely and sustainably produced. So our biblic biblically, our inheritance, whomever the heirs may be, can pass the land and the model we have created on it of environmental humanism uh, to future generations. So concludes my testimony. Well, um, I, I just want to conclude by saying that um, I think there has been um, I know that there has been tons of really unfortunate political and legal interference with that even being a possibility. You know, you mentioned the, the get big or get out model. Wendell Berry definitely rages against that kind of um, centralizing control of an agriculture department that has its national goals. It's not interested in what happens locally or in neighborhoods or regionally or anything like that. And I know you've also talked about how um, a lot of the uh, regulatory apparatus that is is marketed as, um, you know, protecting the consumer from, you know, raw milk or whatever, that probably would be sketchy at the scale of gigantic, you know, dairy concerns, um, also has the happy side effect of pricing out of the market small-scale farms that cannot pay the fees or access the facilities to do the same. So um, I think they're we could see some definite political and legal reform to make this possible. But I also think it's important to say that the the model that you have there is a really great reclamation of land, like you said, that is not useful at an industrial scale. Like where you live is very steep. <laughs> it's it's uh, you, you use a little, um, little, little powered vehicle to get around a lot of the time. And the fact is that that kind of agriculture actually cannot possibly feed the population that we have right now. And so there has to be some way of doing some, at least at scale, agriculture for an at scale population. I, I find myself thinking more and more that as much as anything, the the novum we're wrestling it with in our, you know, I don't know, the past two, three centuries is just awareness of and the sheer quantity of people and the impossibility of, of us as humans who are designed for personal and, you know, close communal relationships to just cope with 
the scale of the population and managing things at scale. So I think it, we have to be cautious again, like we said at the beginning about romantically assuming that you can scale up, you know, the, the, the personal and tribal and actually have it work at gigantic scale. It doesn't. But clearly there has to be some way of doing things at scale that are not destructive, that are not constantly draining out of the earth until the earth is drained dry like is happening to California's aquifers, for example. So, um, right. yeah, I think, I, 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 you know, when we were talking about this, you, you talked about, or at, at the beginning too, uh, an agrarian spirit can apply no matter what kind of location you live in. And it, there is a healthy city-country dialectic. And it seems like, because um, everything is polarized in America right now, that also has become very strained. But um, they're, they're both good things, and they both do what they need to do. And there has to be some way of... Um, allowing the mutual respect and recognition of reality to let them work toward each other. Well, and I think, I think, Sarah, theologically, the fundamental point is to overcome the dualistic anthropology of the sovereign self of modernity, in which thinking things think they have uh, unfettered dominion over extended things. Um, I think that's the the source of a lot of our problems, this kind of thinking about human domination, not human dominion, which means a benevolent uh, uh, rule uh, of nature, but rather human domination, which means an exploitative and extractive relationship uh, to nature. Uh, And fundamentally, we are nature. We're not something other than nature. (laughs) Right. Nature is us. Nature is in us, and we are in nature. And uh, as a result, now, you know, here's the, the d- dilemma that I see. If we could wave a magic wand and immediately disappear into thin air industrial agriculture, half the world's population would starve to death in a year or two. Mm-hmm. And so that's just not doable. It's, it's, it would be inhumane. I worry that some of the more extreme apocalyptic environmentalists motivated by this kind of contempt for humanity as a metastasizing cancer on the face of the earth would be quite happy to see an, a half or three quarters extinction of human beings to save the earth. Yeah, I think I think that's a real force out there. Yeah, it is. Well, we'll talk about that next time too, when we talk about Earth and outer space. But here, I just want to say that sustainability is a good idea, but it must be adapted to the double desires for human well-being and prosperity and environmental integrity. And. Uh, uh, just, just to kind of wrap this up, let me just mention in a little bit more detail some of the practices we use on our farm, which I think illustrate this approach. First of all, we're not Luddites. Uh, as you mentioned, I judiciously employ technology. We have high tensile electric fencing. We, have, uh, we pump water uphill to keep the cattle out of the creek, meaning we're tied into the grid. I use a tractor for bush hogging, tilling, moving earth and manure, spreading seed and harrowing, snow plowing. We avoid using chemical pesticides and herbicides and fungicides. And I also basically avoid chemical fertilizers. But I don't absolutely reject chemicals. 
I need chemicals, for example, for clearing fence lines or for attacking invasive species. This is one of the things people who don't live in the country don't really understand. But if they looked at what's growing on the, on the empty lots in cities, they might understand. There are so many invasive species that have been introduced uh, that if you let something go natural, it's going to it's going to it's going to uh, fundamentally distort the existing uh, ecology of things. So it's going to be all kudzu pro- in the south. <laughs> all kudzu or all ailanthus uh, paradise tree. Second uh, point: in winter, uh, I mentioned we have the solar panels and we have a heat pump that is fired from the solar panels, but we also heat with firewood. Now, firewood is not a fossil fuel, and if you maintain a woodlot, your woodlot is is uh, capturing far more carbon than an efficient wood stove will release in the course of a winter. And uh, moreover, you know, a woodlot has deadfalls. Trees rot and die, branches break off, and most of our, our firewood comes from deadwood. Uh, a third thing practice is that we graze rotationally, and that's the art of moving the cattle from one small section to another frequently so that their fertilizing work is spread out evenly across the land, and each section then has rest time to regenerate before the rotation would return to that original place. And over time, this, again, symbiosis between livestock and soil regenerates the soil, it enriches it, supports the growth of carbon-capturing grasses. The uh, last thing I want to mention here is that we remain connected to the grid. We don't have a, we're not off the grid with our solar panel. And to me, staying connected to the grid is kind of a symbol of the rural-urban symbiosis of biblical or humanistic environmentalism. We take no energy from the net, but in the net rather give to it our surplus. So that relationship to the electric grid depends on this positive relationship with urban and suburban life, without which we would not have a market for the food we produce. So those are just some of the practices uh, I wanted to mention that we have adopted to, uh, that kind of reflect this this model of environmental humanism or a agri- biblical agrarianism. Yeah, that's great. And I can say uh, what a delight it is to to um, visit you there and, and enjoy the, the good produce um, and uh, eat lots of venison. Actually, your, your venison, uh, deer hunting and venison kept us um, eating protein all through graduate school when we had no money. I still remember that very fondly. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a good life. And it's a good, like you said, a good dialectic to keep the the conversation going, I guess, between city and country with the orientation of flourishing for all. Because, you know, as you said, if, if nature doesn't flourish, neither do people. Prosperity runs out if the if the earth itself is not properly cared for. Yeah, I want to conclude with some critical thoughts about industrial agriculture, because I've already acknowledged that if we waved a magic wand, we would starve half 
the human population in a couple of years by disappearing industrial agriculture. So I'm not some kind of fanatic along these lines at all. But here, I think I want to mention what the problems are. There is this model, this, this rotation of corn and soybean depends upon um, constant and ever-increasing and ever more powerful chemical inputs. Um, it, it depends on genetically modifying the crops so that they can tolerate the pesticides and herbicides and fungicides that are then generously sprayed upon the crops. Um, and of course, in the course of natural evolution, natural selection, the weeds and the pests evolve out of these chemical controls and become more potent, more powerful. And, and as a result, you're constantly having to up the ante with the chemical inputs. And this is treating the soil as nothing but a neutral medium in which to grow plants. It's, it's, it's destroying the, the, the biological processes of soil. Building soil regeneratively the way we do it takes time. It's an investment in the future, which presupposes a spiritual and ethical commitment to the land as biblically an inheritance. That's what really worries me about industrial agriculture. Now, you couple that with the trend of investor ownership of agricultural lands, which is turning farmers into tenants. To me, this is not a model of urban-rural partnership. It's a terrible model of colonization of the countryside by the wealthy and the powerful elites living in the cosmopolitan centers. And when you couple that with the greed of corporate investment strategies, with their extractive model for making money, the incentive erodes for these tenant farmers to care for their land as an inheritance to be passed on to the future. Schellenberger's humanistic faith in technological solutions uh, in terms of industrial agriculture is a little too rosy for me, and I think for a biblical agrarianism, which understands the corruption of otherwise good and intelligent systems by greed. So that's my little Jeremiad about the problems in industrial agriculture, uh, and I don't have a solution for it. I just wanted to raise the flag there. Okay. I just want to add to that that so much of the the industrial and corporate and greed side that you criticize is enabled and fostered by its unholy alliance with political and legal subsidies and solutions and incentives and that that greatly distorts the signal. You know, nobody needs that much corn. And the reason why we all consume so much high fructose corn syrup is to create a market for this subsidized crop and you know, this, this can be multiplied thousands of times over. So, um, you know, I, <laughs> people are used to hearing me defend uh, capitalism, but maybe I should say more precisely, like people being able to trade and exchange and try things with each other. And I think what most pe when people now get upset about capitalism, what they really mean is this unholy alliance of um, unaccountable government agencies, plus um, corporate scale wealth working together and actually blocking out real democracy processes and real free trade processes. So that's just what I want to add to that. Amen. I totally agree with that. 
And so let's finish with the last thing I want to mention, Sarah, about our placing most of our land into a permanent conservation easement, which forbids in perpetuity the subdivision uh, and residential building on the land. We can only build for agricultural or silvicultural purposes. And in this easement, in the whereas clauses, we wrote after the psalmist, as the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, we rejoice for this time and place to be the stewards of this little patch of the earth. So, we conceive our little farm, St. Gall Farm, as Christian witness to creation care and practice. Beautiful. All right. Well, next week we are going to set up a launch pad next to your organic garden near the bees and the chickens, and we are going to blast off into outer space. Yes, from the land of Israel to the earth to outer space. To infinity and beyond. (laughs) To boldly go where no one has gone before. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.